We all long for true satisfaction. We all long for a meaningful identity. And we all long for a beauty that deep down we know we don't have within ourselves. One of the most interesting and one of my favorite novels is The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Has anyone read that book before? Anyone? Nobody. Okay, good. So the story, it takes place in London at the end of the 1800s where an artist named Basil Hallward has just painted a portrait of the wealthy and cultured, handsome, beautiful young man who has captured his artistic imagination, Dorian Gray. And Basil's friend, Lord Henry Wotton, sees the beautiful portrait and expresses a desire to meet the man behind it. But Basil fears that Lord Henry Wotton will have a damaging influence on Dorian, Dorian, the seemingly innocent and perfect, beautiful young man. You see, Lord Henry is different. Lord Henry's philosophy of life is unconventional and hedonistic. Lord Henry lives for pleasure without a fear of the consequences. And Basil's fears are well-founded. When Lord Henry meets Dorian, just like the serpent in the Garden of, Garden of Eden, he uses his crafty speech and seductive ideas to entice Dorian to living a life dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure. And Dorian becomes convinced that he is not truly satisfied. But Dorian knows what will be the burden of living a life of sin. He knows that there will be devastating consequences. So Dorian is distraught, caught in a place between desiring to remain a beautiful man, but also desiring to have the pleasures of his heart. Dorian wishes that the painting would take his place and bear the consequences of his sins so that he could commit them but remain a beautiful man. And later, Dorian falls in love with an actress named Sybil Vane, but he is cruel to her and he breaks her heart and drives her to the point where she takes her own life. And it's at that moment that a little evil, crooked smirk appears on the face of his portrait. And Dorian becomes terrified. Terrified that his painting will expose all of his sins. And so he hides it in a remote upper room in his house so that no one will see its dreadful transformation. And as Dorian sinks deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness and depravity and evil, the painting grows more and more filthy, disgusting, and dreadful. And on the inside, on the inside, Dorian is distraught. He's tormented by his guilt. But on the outside, Dorian still appears to be innocent, perfect, and beautiful. But Dorian knows what no one else can see, and that is that he, on the inside, is an ugly man. A while later, Dorian says to Basil, the portrait's creator, would you like to see inside my soul? And he shows him the painting, and Basil is horrified, and he begs him to repent. And tears begin to well up in Dorian's eyes, but then a darkness comes over him, and he says, no, it's too late for me to repent. And he kills Basil in a fit of rage. And at the end of the story, Dorian is so 
distraught. His guilt has tormented, to, tormented him to the point where he decides to finally put an end to all this. He is going to kill and do away with all the ugliness. So he takes the same knife he used to kill Basil, intending to come down on this painting, this wicked, disfigured creature that has now emerged. And a crash is heard, and his servants run in to discover an unharmed, beautiful portrait and an old, disfigured, ugly man lying on the ground with a knife in his heart. Many things, pleasures, and sins in this world gratify us for a moment, but fail to make good on their promise to truly satisfy, leaving us either craving for more and more and more and never having enough, or let down and left empty and on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But instead of exposing our sin and our idols, repenting of them, we often hide them. And we think it's too late for me. This is who I am now. And we begin to let those things give us an identity. And on the outside, we often appear the same as we always have. But on the inside, our hearts just become more and more wretched, deformed and ugly. We all long for true satisfaction. We all long for a meaningful identity and we all long for a beauty that deep down we know we don't have within ourselves. This morning we're gonna look at these three things, satisfaction, identity, and beauty through a tale of two sisters, Rachel and Leah and their bridegroom, Jacob, and the true bridegroom. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. But before we dig dig in, um, let me pray and let's ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we this morning behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word. Lord God, your word which goes forth and does not return empty, but accomplishes what you desire. Lord, you always accomplish what you desire. We ask that you'd come now and help us to understand your word this morning, help us to see Jesus, and once again, accomplish what you desire. Amen. So since we haven't been studying the book of Genesis, we're finishing up John, uh, let me give you a little bit of context to bring us into the story this morning. So in Genesis chapter 12, God in his grace called a godless pagan man named Abram to leave his home and identity and security to dwell in a new land with a new identity under the rule of the true God. And God said to Abram, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in chapter 17, God renames Abram, Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And out of Abraham's descendants would come the Messiah. Jesus. And what that meant was that through every generation of Abraham's family, one child would be the bearer of the messianic seed. God would work through the line of one child, generation after generation, to eventually bring the Messiah from Abraham to Joseph. And so if you recall the story, God said to Abraham in chapter 17, not Ishmael, but Isaac. 
will be the child through whom I carry out my plan of redemption. And God said to Isaac in chapter 25, not Esau, but Jacob will be the child through whom I carry out my plan of redemption. And what's particularly interesting about God's choosing of Jacob and not Esau is that Esau was the firstborn. And so Esau was entitled to all of the firstborn blessings. Esau was the one we would expect to be chosen by God to carry out his plan of redemption. But God reverses human expectations as he often does in the Bible and says that the older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. God showed special favor to Jacob and chose to use him and not Esau to carry out his plan of redemption. But Isaac, their father, loved Esau more than Jacob because Esau was a man's man. He was a skilled hunter, an outdoors guy, but Jacob, Jacob was kind of a mama's boy. He was a quiet, indoors guy. So growing up, Jacob was always second best in the eyes of his father, the inferior son in the eyes of his father. And in chapter 27, when Isaac is old and blind and nearing death, Jacob dresses up as Esau and tricks Isaac into giving him the deathbed blessing of the firstborn. And as a result, Esau, his brother, is furious with him, hates him, and vows to kill him. And Jacob has to run for his life. And by this point in Jacob's life, everything has now fallen apart. He's on the run. He's completely alone. He has no home. He has no family. He has no inheritance. He has no money. Everything has fallen apart. His life is a mess. And in chapter 28, Jacob starts heading to Paddan Aram to find a wife from his mom's side of the family. And on the way, God appears to him in a dream, and he sees he sees a ladder reaching from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending on it and God standing above it speaking to him. But even after this divine encounter, Jacob is still wavering in his commitment to the Lord. He's not yet fully trusting in him. At this point, God is not Jacob's satisfaction and he won't be until he wrestles with him in chapter 32. But now we come to chapter 29 where Jacob comes to Paddan Aram, and he comes to a well in a field, and he sees a beautiful shepherdess, Rachel. And he's enthralled with Rachel, and so he decides to stay with their family and to start working for her dad, Laban. So picking up in verses 15 through 17. So Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, Jacob is his nephew, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So Laban says, I'm not going to make you work for me for free. What, what can I pay you? And the author immediately tells us about Laban's two daughters, the older daughter, Leah, and the younger daughter, Rachel, to prepare the reader for how Jacob is about to respond to Laban's question. And verse 17 says that Leah's eyes were weak. And it's kind of difficult to understand in the Hebrew text, but notice that the idea that Leah's eyes were weak 
is contrasted with the idea that Rachel was beautiful in form or figure and appearance. So the author isn't making a statement about Leah's eyesight. He doesn't say Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, she could see far, far away. That's not what he says, right? So the author's making a statement about Leah's appearance, about her external beauty or rather ugliness. And maybe the author was trying to communicate that Leah was cross-eyed or had protruding, bulging eyes or was maybe just really hard to look at because she was ugly. But regardless, what is clear is that Leah was not beautiful. She was not beautiful. We'll come back to Leah in a bit, but let's talk about Jacob for a second. So verses 18 through 21. Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve you, Laban, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Leah lived in the shadow of her little sister's radiant beauty. And Jacob hardly even took notice of Leah because he was head over heels with desire for Rachel. And Jacob told Laban that he would serve him for seven years just to have her. Seven years. That is a lot of time. That is a lot of energy. That is a lot of sacrifice and commitment. Seven years. That is crazy. Think about that. Think about how much money you could earn in seven years as a hard laborer. And Jacob was saying, it's all worth it just to have Rachel. He is out of his mind with love for Rachel. Now to some of you, this may all sound super romantic, but let's think about this for a second. I want to try to get inside Jacob's mind and his heart to really understand what was going on here. So Jacob worked for Laban. And verse 21 says that when his seven years was up, he demanded that Laban give her to him immediately. He said, give me my wife that I may go into her. He's saying exactly what you think he's saying. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it was necessarily wrong for Jacob to desire to sleep with his soon-to-be wife. But this crass, insensitive, and completely inappropriate comment Jacob makes to, of all people, Rachel's own father shows us something about his heart. And that is this, that Jacob was empty. Jacob was empty. Jacob thought that Rachel was that missing something he had been searching for all his life. Jacob thought that he needed Rachel. Jacob felt that having Rachel would finally make everything right in his life. And his seven years of labor and his crass, insensitive, and completely inappropriate comment show us that Jacob was emotionally overwhelmed with longing for Rachel. He, he had to have her. This is how Jacob was coping with the mess of his life. What do I mean? Sure, Jacob was the child of promise, the child through whom God would carry out his plan of redemption, but Jacob was still longing to be truly satisfied. He never had his father's approval. 
He lost his mother, the only woman, the only person, it seems, who ever loved him. He was on the run from his brother who wanted to kill him. He has no home. He has nothing. Everything has fallen apart. But Rachel, Rachel, if he could just have Rachel to be his wife, everything would be perfect. Everything would be resolved. He would be totally satisfied. Only she could fill the enormous hole in his heart. Serious red flags should go off in our mind when we see the intense desire Jacob has for Rachel, but not a single prayer or mention of God by Jacob at all. Where was God in all of this? Let's keep reading verses 22 through the first half of 25. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob thought he was going to bed with Rachel, but woke up the next morning with Leah. (laughs) Jacob thought he was finally fulfilling all of his hopes and dreams. That wasn't true. And my friends, this is the story of all of us who have tried to find fulfillment apart from God. What do I mean? We all long for true satisfaction. But as one commentator put it, in a theological sense, apart from God, every time you think you are going to bed with Rachel, you wake up the next morning with Leah. What do I mean by that? If you think that advancing in your career or having high social status, or being the most trendy and fashionable and in style, or having the perfect wife, or the perfect husband, or the perfect family, or accomplishing your biggest goals, or having like Dorian Gray, all the pleasures that your heart desires. If you think that any of those things will truly satisfy you, then you have been deceived. Apart from God, Every time you think you are going to bed with Rachel, you wake up the next morning with Leah. So maybe you've pursued one avenue of fulfillment only to be let down and left empty. So then you found another avenue to to pursue, but it too only let you down and left you empty. And, And so on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And you repeat this cycle over and over and over and it never ends. Or maybe you're hooked on one thing and it's like a rut in a road and you're stuck and you just keep traveling down this path only ever needing, desiring, and craving for more and more and more because you're never satisfied. Apart from God, every time you think you are going to bed with Rachel, you wake up the next morning with Leah. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, most people if they have really learned to look inside their hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And then Lewis famously said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is a such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is a such thing as water. 
a man feels sexual desire. Well, there is a such thing as sex. And then this is the famous statement. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So thinking about things logically is sometimes helpful for me. And so if we were to unpack what Lewis said and construct it into a logical argument, it would go like this. Premise one, every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object in the world that can satisfy that desire. Premise two, but there exists in us a desire which no object in this world can satisfy. Conclusion, therefore, there must exist something beyond this physical world which can satisfy this desire. And that something is what I would call a relationship with the Creator God. Even the atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, there comes a time when one asks, even of Shakespeare, even of Beethoven, is that really all there is? When the Apostle Paul came to the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he noticed an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. The Athenians were compelled to worship something unknown to them, yet something they knew was there. St. Augustine put it this way, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Let's keep reading the second half of verse 25. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? How ironic. Laban and Leah did to Jacob exactly what Jacob did to his father Isaac back in chapter 27. Jacob, the deceiver, has been deceived. Evidently, what happened was that on the day of Jacob and Rachel's wedding, the bride would have been heavily veiled all day, and everyone, everyone would have celebrated and feasted well into the night. And so we don't, so when it was finally time for Jacob and Rachel to consummate their marriage by sleeping together, it would have been very dark, and somehow, the text doesn't explain this, Laban swapped out Rachel for Leah. And the emotionally overwhelmed, desirous, and impassioned Jacob didn't even realize it until the next morning. Continuing on, verses 26 through 30. Laban said, It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the bridal week of this one, Leah, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed Leah's bridal week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. So Laban had deceived Jacob, and Jacob finally received Rachel, but only after another seven years of work. And then he was stuck with Leah too having married her unknowingly. And Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, so much so that the next verse tells us that he actually hated her. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated by Jacob, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. 
So again, God is reversing human expectations because you'd expect that Rachel, the beautiful woman, the one Jacob actually loves, would be the one through whom God would carry out his plan of redemption. You'd expect that the messianic line would continue through the offspring of Jacob and Rachel. But that's not how God has chosen to sovereignly work in this situation. God opens Leah's womb to conceive. And surely, Leah praises God and starts seeing herself in light of God's love for her and not Jacob's hatred toward her, right? No. No, Leah has a serious identity crisis. She gives birth to three sons, and each of the names she gives them is associated with a word play in the Hebrew. And then she makes a comment after naming each one about how Jacob must now view her. So as I read, see if you can tell who she thinks she is and who she wants to be. Verses 32 through 34. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For, she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. So Leah gives birth to her first son and names him Reuben, which in the Hebrew means see a son. As to say, now Jacob will have to take notice of me. Now he will have to stop looking through me. Maybe now because I have borne him this son. If the Lord has looked, how much more should Jacob now look? But it's implied in the text that Jacob still doesn't look. So Leah gives birth to a second son and names him Simeon, which in the Hebrew sounds like the word for heard, as to say, now Jacob will have to listen to me. Now he will have to stop ignoring me. Maybe now because I've borne him two sons. If the Lord has heard, how much more should Jacob now hear? But it's implied in the text that Jacob still doesn't listen. So she gives birth to a third son and names him Levi, which in the Hebrew sounds like the word for attached, as to say, now Jacob will have to desire to be with me. Now he will have to stop avoiding me. Maybe now I've borne him three sons. If the Lord desired to be with her, how much more should Jacob now desire to be with her? But it's implied in the text that Jacob still doesn't desire to be with her. Who does Leah think she is? Who does Leah want to be? Leah is still seeing herself in light of how Jacob sees her, an undesirable, unlikable, unattractive nuisance of a woman who is not worth looking at, not worth listening to, not worth being with. Leah is seeing her worth, her purpose, her identity, through not the eyes of the Lord, but through Jacob's eyes. And what Leah wants to be is what all women in this ancient culture wanted to be, the wife of a loving husband and the mother of many kids and grandkids. We all long for a meaningful identity. Who do you think you are? Who do you want to be? How do you define yourself? Do you define yourself by your career? I'm a salesman. I'm a businessman. I'm a laborer. Do you define yourself by your family or your lineage or your ethnicity? I'm the son of so-and-so. 
I'm the daughter of so-and-so. I'm white. I'm black. I'm Hispanic. I'm Asian. Do you define yourself by a particular talent you have? I can do this. I can do that. Do you define yourself by a particular hobby you have? I'm a lifter. I'm a painter. I'm a poet. I'm a craftsman. Do you define yourself by what's in your bank account? I'm rich. I'm poor. Do you define yourself by your political position? I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Libertarian. Do you define yourself by your gender or your sexual orientation? I'm a guy. I'm a girl. I'm gay. I'm straight. Do you define yourself by a particular sin you struggle with? I do this. I do that. I think about this. I think about that. Do you define yourself by your afflictions? I have cancer. I'm sick. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. Do you define yourself by a particular person's opinion or words about you? I'm awesome. I'm cool. I'm stupid. I'm a loser. Do you define yourself by a person's by a particular person's approval or rejection of you? I'm accepted. I'm welcomed. I'm rejected. I'm ignored. How do you define yourself? Or maybe a better question, do you define yourself or is it God who has defined who we are? Part of being made in the image of God is that we are worshiping creatures. We all put something in the position of glory in our lives and we live for it. Everyone does this, not just religious people. And we either worship God as we ought or we make our own gods to worship. In other words, even if man removes himself from God, he will replace God with a God of his own design. The Bible calls these gods idols, and fallen man, dead in his sin, apart from God, is by nature a God-maker. And what we worship, what we put in the position of glory in our lives, what we live for is that thing that centers our entire existence and gives us our identity. Let me say that again. What we worship, what we put in the position of glory in our lives, what we live for is that thing that centers our entire existence and gives us our identity. Leah worshiped Jacob's opinion of her. She put Jacob's opinion of her in the position of glory in her life, and she lived for his approval. And because Leah gave Jacob's opinion of her God status in her life, Jacob's opinion of her became, in her mind, who she is. But even though some of those things Jacob thought about her may have been true, none of those things that were true about her made her who she is. And what happens if we allow the things that are true about us to define us? Well, if you let your career or your bank account or your family or a hobby or a talent or whatever define who you are, 
if you lose that thing, or if it's taken away from you, you'll lose yourself. If you find your identity in the things of this world, which are all temporary and fleeting and passing away, then in the moment you lose that thing which you have allowed to define who you are, you will lose yourself. You will lose your identity, you'll lose your value, you'll lose your purpose and meaning. For so long, Leah was living for Jacob's approval, but dying by his rejection because she made his opinion God. But then something happened. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Something changed within Leah when she bore her fourth, fourth son. This time, Leah didn't give birth and immediately looked to Jacob. She immediately looked to the Lord and praised him and named her son Judah, which in the Hebrew sounds like the word for praise. It seems like God's love for Leah was finally beginning to affect some kind of change in her heart. But my question is this, why Leah? Why Leah? Why would God choose to carry out his plan of redemption through her and not Rachel, the one who Jacob, the child of promise, actually loved? Why would the messianic seed continue through the line of the reject, the unlikable, the undesirable, the ugly, Leah? Why Leah? I think there may be several reasons, but here's one. God chooses the foolish and the weak in the world to shame the wise and the strong. And throughout scripture, we see God working through the most unlikely people, the people you would never expect God to work through, so that when he does work through them in mighty and powerful ways, there is no doubt in anybody's mind that the Lord has done this. This was God, not them. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And his wonders are highlighted against the backdrop of our feebleness, in our incompetence, in our ugliness, in our sinfulness. Here's another reason. God only works through ugly people. And Leah is a picture of us. Leah's physical ugliness is a picture of our moral and spiritual ugliness before the holy God. We all long for a beauty that deep down we know we don't have in ourselves. Apart from God, we all have ugly hearts. Apart from God, we are all infected and impure with sin. Apart from God, even our righteous deeds are as good as filthy menstrual rags, Isaiah says. Apart from God, we are all tainted with this horror inside of us. And surely, every time Leah considered her sister's impressive beauty, she became more aware of her own ugliness. When Leah saw Rachel, and when Leah saw Jacob's love for Rachel and not her, she became all the more aware of how not beautiful she was. And just like Leah, so it is with us. 
when we reflect upon the beauty of God, we begin to see more clearly just how not beautiful we are. And the more we understand God's moral beauty, the more we understand our moral ugliness. And conversely, the more we understand our moral ugliness, the more we understand God's moral beauty. God's beauty is highlighted all the more against the blackened backdrop of our corruption, depravity, and evil. The tarnish, discoloring, and disfiguring of our sinfulness. It highlights God's beauty. But in light of your own deformities, how beautiful does beauty look to you? Isaiah, speaking of the coming Messiah, said, your eyes will soon behold the king in his beauty. And Leah didn't know this at the time, but through her fourth son, Judah, God would bring the Messiah, Jesus, the beautiful king, into this world. And the entire Old Testament points forward to the coming of this beautiful king who would slay the dragon and get his girl. But one might ask, who's the girl? The object of the beautiful king's desire. A beautiful king must desire a beautiful bride, right? Well, yes and no. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous and the beautiful, the Rachels, but the unrighteous and the ugly, the Leahs. But why? Well, we may consider ourselves to be beautiful among each other, right? Because some people appear to be less beautiful than us, murderers and adulterers and thieves. But judging ourselves up against each other, people who are less beautiful than us, is to mistakenly see life on only a horizontal plane of reality. (laughs) My friends, this is not our world. This is God's world. There exists a vertical plane of reality. And God is the standard of beauty. And none of us meet his standard. We in our flesh and apart from Jesus are not beautiful. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. And Romans 3, 10 through 12 all say, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We in our flesh and apart from Jesus are not beautiful. And this is a huge problem for mankind because it's not only that we don't meet God's standard of beauty, but our sin makes us debtors to death. We actually deserve separation from God forever. All we have earned is the just judgment and wrath of God against us for our sin. We all stand before God, naked and exposed, guilty and condemned and covered in our own sin and filth. But the good news, the beautiful news, is that God loves us. God loves us. God the Father loves us so much that he sent his only son into the world through the line of an ugly woman's son to carry out our death sentences in a substitutionary sacrifice on a cross. Paul says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. 
Jesus came into this world our filth and lived a perfect, sinless life, the kind of life you and I ought to live before the holy God but cannot, and then went to the cross, looked death in the face, and demonstrated through his death that we are loved. Jesus, in his grace, died a death we should have died for our sin. Then Jesus rose from death, proving he was who he claimed to be, conquering the powers of Satan and our sin and death forever. On the cross, Jesus became the most horrendous, despicable, disgusting, deplorable, wretched, filthy, and ugly thing in all creation, our sin. He became our sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Jesus became like the picture of Dorian Gray. And when he died, our sin died with him. And he did this willingly to make us clean, to make us beautiful, to give us a new identity. Jesus' beauty covers the deformities of all who trust in him. Jesus' beauty covers the deformities of all who trust in him, such that God now looks upon that person and sees not a Leah, but a Rachel, a beautiful bride made beautiful by Jesus, by Jesus' spirit in him. In the moment we behold Jesus for who he really is, we ourselves are made beautiful. And we are now set free to see ourselves not in light of our past or our sin or anything else, but in light of how God the Father now sees us. The book of Ephesians calls this new identity in Christ. And if we have turned away from our sin and have trusted in Jesus for salvation, God now sees Christ in us. And God now sees us in Christ. He doesn't see our past or our failures or our sin, but he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus who has covered our deformities with an imperishable beauty. And God now calls us his son or his daughter. He calls us his own. He calls us his bride. And all loves in this world absolutely pale in comparison to the love of Jesus, the true bridegroom for his bride. One commentator said that pursuing pleasures and trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction apart from Jesus is like a person dying of thirst out in the middle of the ocean without a drop of water to, the, to drink. To the person dying of thirst, the ocean appears to offer fulfillment and the ability to quench all his thirst, but it's a deadly illusion because salty ocean water can never do what it appears to be able to do. It can only kill. And so it is with all pursuits and pleasures in this world apart from Jesus. They can never make good on their promises to bring us the kind of fulfillment and satisfaction that we need and we're created for and they sure cannot bring us salvation from sin. We all long for true satisfaction. We all long for a meaningful identity and we all long for a beauty that deep down we know we don't have in ourselves. Apart from Jesus... Nothing in this world will ever truly satisfy you. You'll be like Jacob going to bed with Rachel only to discover that in the next, the next morning. It's always Leah. Apart from Jesus, nothing in this world will ever give you a meaningful identity. You'll be like Leah who spent so much time seeing herself 
through the eyes of everything but the Lord. And apart from Jesus, nothing in this world will ever give you the beauty that deep down you know you don't have within yourself. You'll be morally and spiritually ugly before the holy God because you'll still be covered in your own sin and filth. And your end will be like Dorian Gray. You'll die in your sin. But at the cross, at the cross we see the answer to all our longings and needs. Our Savior, our Messiah from the line of Judah, Leah's son, our true bridegroom who loves us and truly satisfies us in himself, gives us a meaningful identity in himself and makes us beautiful in himself. Jacob was the loving bridegroom who gave up many years of his life to obtain a bride that would be with him for a lifetime. But Jesus, the perfectly loving, true bridegroom, gave up his earthly life to obtain a bride that would be with him forever. And whether today you are a Rachel who knows the love of God for you already or are a Leah who wonders how God could ever love a person like you, or are a Jacob who is still just searching for a love that really satisfies. I urge you to turn from your sin and look to the cross where Jesus looked your death in the face, exchanged his beauty for your ugliness, and demonstrated through his own death that you are loved to make you his beautiful bride and to be your greatest love. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to pray for all of us, myself included, who are in some way still seeking out true satisfaction, a meaningful identity, and things that will make us beautiful apart from you. Lord God, expose those idols in our hearts, those things we have put in the position of glory in our life. Lord God, may they melt away in the face of Jesus, the radiance of your glory, and be replaced with you, our beautiful King, our true bridegroom, the lover of our souls. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.